So we're finally leaving the... Boy, it just went out of my head. Watergate, thank you. Wow. I stayed there a long time. I can't believe it slipped out. I've, I've Fountain Gate and then the Watergate, yeah. So we have been there quite a while, and we're going to move on to the Horse Gate. And the Horse Gate is very much involved with spiritual warfare. This is where it truly begins in our life in a way different than when we first became born again at the Sheep Gate. Because spiritual warfare is going to be in our life all the way around. But at the, at the Horse Gate, it is going to ramp up and it is going to greatly increase. I want to call our attention to the scripture that Paul gives us in Romans 15, 4. And he says, everything that was written in the past, everything in the scriptures so that through, was written to teach us so that through the endurance that's taught in the scriptures and the encouragement they provide, you and I get what? Hope. Because we see a lot of people that endured. We see a lot of people uh, that give us encouragement. We can look at their lives in the Old Testament, even in the New Testament. And I should be able to learn from that. Don't let anyone tell you you shouldn't study the Old Testament. The Old Testament is going to be revealed in the New. So much of what we read in the New, we have to go back in the Old to understand what we're reading over here in the New. Now, Adrian Rogers has a definition for spiritual warfare. He says, The inward and the outward battle we face against the enemies of God. That's how he defines it. Because you know that once you were born again, do you now have an inward battle? Yes, because your spirit, who has not been connected with God, is now born again, and it's alive, and your old man flesh is like... Who are you, and what are you doing here? You know, because this has not been prevalent in your life. All of a sudden it is, and now there's going to be a war within you, and then we're also going to have spiritual warfare, outward enemies. He said these enemies include Satan, his minions, demons, and fallen angels. There's also sin in our life that we're going to have to deal with, which can be it's defined uh, in the New Testament as the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. So these are things all of us are going to contend with as we walk out our Christian faith. He goes on to say, once you become a Christian, the battle between your spirit, my internal spirit now, which is now alive to God, and my flesh, that old sinful nature I inherited from Adam, they are going to be at odds all the time. That's that, you know, they fight all the time. We must learn to utilize the Holy Spirit that will help us conquer all of that. Conquer the flesh, our circumstances, sin in our life. And remember, at the dung gate... We submit totally to the Holy Spirit. We put ourselves on the potter's wheel. And what does he do when we let the Spirit have control of us? He listens to the fountain gate. The rivers of living water begin flowing out on us. We're lifted to the... Uh... Yes! Wow! <laughs> water gate. And the water gate is where the Word of God becomes alive in me. And it's just, it's popping off the page at me, and it's really beginning to change me and grow me. 
And now, as that happens, you have a target on your back. And so we're going to be at the horse gate. Horses were used in warfare uh, in the Old Testament. And now Satan's really going to be after us because he doesn't want us to continue growing. He wants to hinder our growth. And so this is a battle that we're going to encounter. And only the Holy Spirit can give me victory. Only the Holy Spirit can give me victory in my circumstances, sin in my life. So, we're going to go back to the beginning, a great place to start, right? We always go start in Genesis. And so, we want to learn about spiritual warfare in the Old Testament. And I'm just telling you, these next couple of lessons, it is just going to barely touch the surface. If I really dug into spiritual warfare throughout the Old Testament, we would be here for a long time. And it would be a lot of lessons. So that's not my purpose right now. We just want to give us a flavor of the... Okay, the horse gate. I don't know why I am struggling there this morning. Okay. So we're going to start in the Old Testament where spiritual warfare really began, this rebellion against God. And we're going to go to the rebellion of Lucifer. Remember, that was his name originally was Lucifer. We can go to Isaiah and we can go to Ezekiel and we see, we learn a lot about him before he fell. Now we know that Lucifer was a created being, right? Was he one of the most beautiful creatures that God ever created? Yes, it says his splendor and his beauty was just beyond. It was a great gift from God. But instead of giving glory to God for how he made him, he decides that he becomes filled with pride, and this isn't enough. And as I said that, it reminded me of people that want to create a different person than God created. That's your transgender spirit. They want to create, I don't like who you created, I'm going to make an identity over here. So, anyway, he was given the highest authority, He is in Eden, we know that. He was in the garden of God. He was originally blameless, and then he was found with sin later on. So he possessed great beauty. I think it says he was one of the most beautiful creatures God ever created. And he had the voice, remember, we think he's involved with worship because of the timbrels, the voice that he had. Great beauty, power, and authority. And you would think, isn't that enough? No, he wanted more. Because he wanted to be exalted, himself exalted, and to be like God, possibly even above God. And I want us to remember here and get this point. Does Satan, did he have a free will? He had a free will. And so he fell from a point of perfection. He was blameless through the agency of exercising his free will. Now, when others joined in with him, we had many others that joined in the rebellion, opposing God, opposing God's purpose for why he created the angels. And when he rebelled against God, we know that he took a third of the angels with him. And we are going to see these mischievous angels all through the Old Testament. And we're going to look at an incident today. A third of them. We don't know how many there were. But a third of them, I'm sure, was a lot because we have a lot of incidences of fallen angels throughout the Old Testament. So with their fall, 
the rebellion and this war began, and now you and I probably aren't aware of it a whole lot, but there is a battle going on in the spiritual realm. The heavenly realm, it's an invisible realm that you and I don't see. But there, since that day, there has been this war going on between the forces of good, the forces of evil, God and Satan. So this now, as we get into the Bible and get into the book of Genesis, this spiritual warfare in the heavenlies is going to move to earth. And we're going to see the battle just increase on earth called the cosmic conflict of the ages. And earth is going to become the center of this battle. Now, Satan is the antagonist. God is the protagonist. And we have a raging spiritual battle that goes on month after month, year after year, century after century. It just continues. So we're going to see that Satan really had five different areas to thwart God's plan and purpose. Does, did God have a plan for the promised seed? And Satan's going to try to come against that. God had a plan for the human race. God had a plan for the nation of Israel. He had a plan and purpose for Jesus Christ when he was here on earth. And he has a plan and purpose for the church. And Satan is going to try to come against every one of them and thwart God's purpose for each one of these areas. You and I are going to look at number one and two today. And then we will look at the others uh, next week and possibly a third week. So we're going to go back to the beginning. We're going clear back to Genesis 1. And we see, we're going to start seeing the seed line that uh, God ordained in Genesis 1. And this, is, this seed is the, uh, going to bring the Messiah. So in Genesis 1.26, I want you to pay real close attention because we look at every word. God said, let us. Who do you hear there? the Trinity. Let us make man, he's going to be in our image and in our likeness. Notice they're separated in our image and in our likeness. And we're going to let him have dominion over the fish of the sea, fowl of the air, the cattle, over all the earth, every creeping thing. Did man have an exalted position in the beginning? Yes, in the image of God, the likeness of God, and have dominion and rule over the earth. That was God's plan and purpose when he created them. Adam and Eve were made in the image and the likeness of God and given dominion over the earth. We know it was a beautiful place. It was the garden of God. There was no sin. There were no weeds. The animals were at peace. It was just the ideal place. In fact, it would be called maybe paradise is what people have talked about it. But it's the garden of God. Now, the problem is we have somebody enter the garden. And Satan is going to enter into the garden and he is called the shining one. In Hebrew, this is the word nakash. And he will become the serpent. But he doesn't enter as this slithering snake around the tree. All right? Remember who he was. So he's called the shining one who eventually will be the serpent. So this, is take, this information is taken from a hermeneutics website. Dr. Heiser has spent much of his time uh, studying and going into the depths of the Nakash and the serpent.
So I found some of his writings very interesting. The Nakash of Eden in Genesis 3 is Lucifer, the shining angel that was expelled from God's presence who seduced Eve into rebelling. This was not from the animal kingdom when he first appeared to Eve. But if he was a highly intelligent spirit being whose objective was to destroy humanity. All right, now let's continue with his thought. Lucifer's beauty and brilliance is documented in the scriptures, true? It's in Isaiah and Ezekiel. And by reason, we have to consider that as we think about him in the garden. Eve would have been far more attracted to a stunningly beautiful, angelic being that Lucifer's described as to be like the prophets say, as opposed to a snake. But yet, all of the pictures that you see, and remember, pictures are not inspired, and a lot of times they're not biblical, but you see pictures of Eve and the snake slithering and hissing and sometimes this ugly creature, it's hard to believe that she would be tempted by that. But I can believe more that she was tempted by this beautiful creature whose objective is to destroy humanity and to get her to fall into sin. So the root word for nakash is also used for the luminous metals of copper and brass. And we see that all through the Old Testament things, even in the tabernacle with the brazen altar. You think of the us. the post, the pole that uh, Moses made in the wilderness, the brazen uh, snake and all, could certainly be used to describe the luminous one, uh, Lucifer. So in Genesis 3, verse 1, the word nakash is used as a noun. And it says, the serpent came in to the garden. He was more subtle than any creature. That snake, serpent, shining one is the meaning of the word in Genesis 3, 1. But if I go to verse 4 and 5, it changes to nokesh, which is the same root word, but it's a verb. And it means he could use divinations and give omens. So those are the meanings we need to keep in mind as we look at the temptation of Eve. So remember, when he first comes to her, I love to call it whispers of poison. Because he's done that in my life many times. Whispers something in me that is actually poison to me. And he does that a lot to discourage us, to get us off track, to make us think we are so unworthy, we're, you know, all of those things. So he comes to her, and the first thing he does is what? Try to create doubt. And he uses a phrase like, hath God really said? Did he really say that? You know, did you misunderstand it? And he goes from doubt to another verse, and he has direct denial of what God said, and he says, you shall not surely die. God told them they would, correct? So he likes to create doubt, and then he goes to denial, and then she succumbed to the temptation. Now, what was the first thing that they did? Did they realize that life had changed? Yes, and God was calling for them in the garden, right? In the cool of the evening, God's calling, and where are they? They're hiding because they know that something has happened and they don't have the communication, the fellowship that they did. And so what are they doing? A work of their hands. They, don't they feel the need to be covered? They felt the need to be covered, but they're going to do something of their own work. 
Is that what people still do today? Work of your hands, trying to be accepted or approved by God, something you present to him. This is the first instance of man-made religion where we're going to use our hands, our work, and say, is this acceptable? But what did he do? He teaches them right here. He killed some animals and took their blood, and then he also made skins from those animals that had given their lives. He's teaching them right then to be covered. We have to be covered by a, an animal sacrifice, the lamb, and we'll eventually go to the lamb of God. Are we covered by his blood right now? If we're born again, we're covered by his blood, his robe of righteousness. So they fall and they rebelled against God. And remember, God drove them out of the garden. Now, what happened to all of the, their stuff? Made in the image of God, made in the likeness of God, and they had dominion. Well, here's what happened to the dominion. They turned over the rights of dominion to Satan, and he's given authority. How do I know that? I have to go to the New Testament, and I go to Ephesians 2, 2. And he says in Ephesians, Wherein in time past you walked according to the course of this world, according to who? The prince of the power of the air. He is the spirit that works in the children of disobedience. And we also could go to, I think it's Luke, maybe about chapter 4, where he takes Jesus out in the wilderness and he's going to tempt him. Is it one of the temptations, if you will worship me, I will give you all the kingdoms of the world. That's what, he told, that's what Satan told him. They were his to give, and I've got a scripture, I think it's next week's lesson, where he says they were mine to give. He had the authority to do that. So we know that he was given dominion. So they had commands to obey, correct? God basically told them one command in Genesis. Don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They could eat of all the other trees, but that one. But they rejected that, right? And they disobeyed. They chose to. So Adam forfeited his assignment. What assignment did you have, Adam? I was made in God's image. I was made in his likeness. I was going to rule and have dominion. And you forfeited it? Yes, he did. So that was in Genesis. I want to bring this to present day to you and me for a few minutes. So we're going to go look in Romans 8.29. In Romans 8.29, it says, we've just had verse 28 that most of us can say by heart. We know that all things work together for good to those that love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. What's his purpose? Verse 29. Whom he did foreknow, there's foreknowledge involved. He predestined us to be what? Conformed to the image of his son. Is that what he wants for you and me as believers? I want every one of you, everyone that's accepted Christ, especially since the day of the church age at Pentecost, the church is to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ so that Jesus would be the firstborn and then there would be many others that would follow. Okay? Are you all staying with me this morning? Okay. Now, if I go to Revelation 5, I see something else for you and me because in Revelation 5, <clears throat> the church is in heaven. 
And in Revelation 5, he says, He's made us unto our God kings and priests, and we are going to reign on the earth. So not only am I to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ, in the future he wants us to be a king and a priest and reign and rule with Jesus Christ on the earth. That's our inheritance, ladies. Yes. Can I forfeit it? Look at the examples, and we'll have some scriptures here. Romans eight seventeen, And Satan's going to do everything he can to keep me from getting my inheritance everything that's where spiritual warfare is going to ramp up at the horse gate Romans eight seventeen. if we are children we're an heir and I'm an heir of God are all of us heirs of God yes we're joint heirs with Christ the son if we suffer with him now see you're going to start seeing the ruling and reigning and being a joint heir with Jesus Christ is going to have a few parameters on it if we suffer with him. Second Timothy, Paul is telling Timothy, you need to endure hardness as a soldier. He talks about us being in the Lord's army, and we're to uh, be faithful and good stewards. And he says in verse 12, if we suffer, we shall reign with him. Now see, I want to reign with him. Are we to expect suffering? Yes, and we are to, we are to uh, submit to it without whining. And asking why, right? That's right. So, here, here I have my inheritance. Francine, I want you to be conformed to my image. I want to make you a king and a priest, Revelation 5.10. And I want you to rule and reign with me. And you're thinking, wow, all of that? Can I forfeit it? And I believe the answer is yes. Will God exalt me, though, if I humble myself to him now? in this life yes that's why we studied the dung gate and stayed there for weeks and I go to Philippians 2 and Jesus Christ is he always our example yes and it says in chapter 2 verse 5 let the mind that was in Jesus be in me let his mind his obedience what he was willing to do what the father told him he was obedient let that be in me no matter what and it goes on to say in verse 7 he made himself of no reputation and he was a bond servant to the father and then it says he came in the likeness of men being found in appearance as a man he humbled himself that's our dung gate for you and me he humbled himself and he became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. There's our example. And then, what does it say? Wherefore God exalted him highly, and given him a name above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of, thing, uh, of things in heaven, things in earth, things under the earth, and every, and every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Do you see the humility of Jesus before his Father? And then God exalted him. He's the example, the same. We, you and I have to stand on that. Keep that in focus as we live our life. Now, in James 4, verse 7, this is some people's favorite verse. I hear him say it. I can resist the devil and he will flee from me. Put in part A. You've got to look at the whole verse. What does it say? 
submit myself to God. There we are at the dung gate again. Then I can resist the devil and he will flee from me. Resisting the devil has to be accompanied by submitting to God. And so he says in James 4.10, If I will humble myself now before the Lord, he will exalt me. And he has exaltation ready for us. But we humble ourselves now if we want to be exalted later. So, conform to his image, be a king and a priest, rule and reign with him. And I want you to look at verse 30 now of chapter 8. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, he called them. Those he called, he justified. And those that he justified, he glorified. What's missing? What's missing in the chain? Sanctification. He calls, he justifies, he glorifies, because is all that the work of Jesus Christ? Okay, but sanctification, does it take my cooperation? He cannot sanctify and change to the image of Jesus Christ a hard clay pot that won't get on the potter's wheel. He needs soft, pliable. That is missing in the chain. What's missing? My sanctification. I am justified. Am I promised to have a glorified body? But sanctification is a lifelong process, and he, that's his desire. He wants to change me, but it's going to take my cooperation. Getting in the Word, keeping my vessel clean, all that that we learned at the Dungate. So, are there consequences for disobeying God there in the Garden of Eden? Yes, and that not only leads to the downfall of Adam and Eve, but to their offspring, to all of mankind, to you and me thousands of years later. There's still consequences. Look at Genesis 5. We're only a couple of chapters away from the fall. This is the written account of Adam's line. When God created man, he made man in the likeness of God. He created male and female, and he blessed them. But when, and when they were created, he called them man. But Adam lived 130 years. He had a son, and his son was in whose likeness? Adam's. And in his own image. A lot of people miss that. Because now we have that sin nature that was passed on from Adam. We're in the likeness of Adam, and he named this boy Seth. So in Genesis 3, 14 and 15, we're going to see that God's going to now declare war on Satan for coming into the garden, tempting Eve. And now we're going to see in Revelation 3, clear through Genesis 12, Satan's effort and plot to destroy the line of the Messiah. Remember, you have to keep in mind there are two seeds going all through the Bible. You have the seed of the woman. You have the seed of the serpent. They're always at war. Always at war. So you and I are going to look at verse 14 first. This is after the fall, and God is pronouncing the judgment and the curse. And the, the serpent is going to be given a diet of dust. Now, I found this very fascinating. In Genesis 3.14, the Lord said to the serpent, and we know the serpent is Nakash, the shining one. 
Because you've done this, you are cursed above all cattle, above every beast of the field, and now up on your belly you're going to go. It wasn't on the belly till after the, the curse, till after the fall. And dust you're going to eat all the days of your life. Well, I've, I thought this is fascinating, so I'm going to dig into this a little bit on the curse. A diet of dust. Don't you think that's a pretty serious curse? Yeah. It constitutes the main penalty for denying what God had said, and thereby did he lure the whole human race into sin against the Lord God. And part of his curse is he will eat dust the rest of his life. In the Hebrew Bible, eating dust is an expression meaning a sign of total defeat. And he is going to have total defeat at the end of the thousand years. All right. Now, I want us to look at Isaiah 65 because this is very interesting. I'd never noticed this. These, this is a passage telling us about the millennial kingdom when Jesus will be ruling uh, for that thousand years. The wolf and the lamb are going to feed together. The lion's going to eat straw just like the bullock. But look at the serpent. What's he still eating? Dust shall be the serpent's meat. Even in the millennial kingdom, he's still going to be eating dust. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountains, says the Lord. So even in the period of peace and victory, Jesus is ruling and reigning in righteousness, and there's no curse on the earth, there's no curse on the animals, except the serpent is still going to eat dust during this time. Their diet will never change, even in this new creation. How many of you knew that before? I didn't either. We all learned something new. So the curse on the serpent is not going to be lifted, and they will suffer total and endless defeat. That's still coming. Now, the serpent and its seed will never be restored. They're going to be losers for all of eternity. Defeated forever, doomed to eat dust, which the Hebrew Bible interprets as total defeat. That's coming. So, we all know that God formed man from the dust of the ground, true? All right. And a serpent eats humans. Think about it. He devours us. The serpent eats humans, the dust, all the days of its life. So I kept digging into this, and I found it really fascinating. If we go to the Greek, the word serpent means an enchanter who can whisper a spell, and he diligently observes us. He's on his belly. And in the Hebrew Bible, that means gushes out, and it represents a hunting tactic. He lies in wait, and when we step into his range... He gets a toehold. I used to say foothold, but somebody said, no, he gets a toehold. When, okay, when the prey steps into range, he pounces out, he gushes forth, and he grabs it with his incisors or claws. It's a swift surprise swoop. That's who we're describing. The word eat in the Hebrew is to devour, and it means he's swallowing a mouthful. He gulps it entirely and swallows it up. Does he do that to some of our prodigals? Does he do it to humans all the time? Yes. 
So the serpent, the enchanter, can gush out his venom, his poison, and devour humans until God crushes his head, but his head won't be crushed until the end of the thousand years. He devours, uh, devour covers the gamut. Some people, it's little by little until satiated all the way to gulping down whole. Now, I thought that was really interesting. Okay, are there verses in the New Testament that also refer to this abysmal attitude of the serpent going around devouring humankind? Sure, Second, 1 Peter 5, Be sober and vigilant because your adversary the devil, he walks about like a roaring lion seeking somebody to devour. That means eat up either little by little or gulp them down, swallow entirely. Devour in Strong's is G2666. I thought, well, that's interesting. Okay. <laughs> and it means swallowing a mouthful of food, gulp it entirely, or swallow up. I've just saw, I, re, I repeated a slide. Anyway, we'll go over it again. Devour covers the gamut from he goes little by little. Some of us, you know, it's little by little he gets us. And then some, he just goes in for the kill, you know, and gulps down the hole. Remember, serpent is an enchanter, belly is gush out, and eat is to devour. Now, I moved over to Revelation 12 because I wanted to see, well, what happens when we get into Revelation? And in chapter 12, verse 3, another sign appears in heaven, and there's this great fiery red dragon that has seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems on his head. And we are told in verse 9 that the great dragon is the devil or Satan. So we know who this great red dragon is. And then it says, His tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. The dragon is standing before the woman. Who is the woman? Israel. Thank you. She's ready to give birth. Did Jesus come from the line of somebody in the nation of Israel? Yes. So she's ready to give birth, and the dragon is standing there ready to devour her child as soon as she gave birth. So there's that word devour, and remember that comes from that curse. Now, the serpent is the red dragon casting his demons to devour the child Jesus as soon as he is born. This is the equivalent. He's gushing water, going on his belly, destroying humans, eating them alive. And he wanted very much to kill baby Jesus, to prevent it and then kill him. Then I went to chapter 20 to see how all this ends. And in chapter 20, we're going to see the defeat of Satan and we see that after the thousand years are over, Satan gets out of his pit where he's been chained for a thousand years. He's going to be let out for a little bit. Okay, and in verse 8, he's going to come out to deceive the nation. See, he's still the deceiver. He hadn't learned anything in a thousand years. And he's at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Listen to the number of people that will join him. Their number is like the sand of the sea. Can you imagine? They've been a thousand years under Jesus Christ. But many of them are going to 
go with Satan. They marched up over the broad plain of the earth. They surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city, which is Jerusalem. But fire is going to come down from heaven and what? Devour them, swallow them up entirely. And that you can find that in chapter 20 of Genesis, I mean Revelation. Now you and I are going back to Genesis again and look at another trail. We have the scarlet thread. Most of you are familiar with that. This is the seed of the woman. This is the first hint we have of a virgin birth. And this is going to be the title for the Messiah. The scarlet thread, that's who he is. And the seed of the woman. So in God's plan of redemption through the seed of the woman, we've got a seed, a descendant of the woman. And what is he going to be able to do? Crush the head of the serpent Satan. And that's what we'll see in Revelation chapter 20. He will be consumed and thrown into the lake of fire. Now, in verse 15, he says, I'm going to put enmity between thee and the woman, between thy seed and her seed. He is going to bruise or crush your head, but you will bruise his heel. So that was established in verse 15. So the war which began in the spiritual realm when Lucifer fell and rebelled, has it now entered the physical world? Yes. And God promised the judgment on Satan is going to come from the seed of the woman. So that Jesus will be able to judge Satan and have the final say and crush his head. So does Satan know that the seed of the woman is going to destroy him? He knows that. So what's he going to do? I'm going to, you know, bring some contention. We're going to have sibling rivalry. That's where it started, between Cain and Abel. And so what does he do? He puts into Cain jealousy and hatred of Abel. Because we know is Abel the seed that is supposed to carry the Messiah? Yes. So what happens? Here we have the second incident of Uh, man-made religion Cain is the farmer he's got all this beautiful produce and he takes the work of his hands just like his parents did and he's offering that and he gets really upset because God won't accept it it's rejected never the work of our hands to be approved by God and accepted by him they had been taught I'm sure Adam and Eve taught both boys it takes a blood sacrifice So you have Abel who brings the sacrifice like he's supposed to, and his sacrifice is accepted. Well, this Cain's not very happy, and so he kills Abel. And so here you have the seed of Satan, that seed, the curse that's been put on him. He is going to kill the one who is supposed to carry the line of the Messiah. And so that doesn't happen. I mean, he does kill him, and then Cain goes far away. From, from where they have lived. So Satan's strategy to thwart God's plan, the seed of the woman, failed here because we're going to learn then in chapter 4 of Genesis, she's going to have Seth. And remember, Seth is appointed. He's appointed by God. And she said, God has given me another seed instead of Abel, whom Cain slew. So now is the deliverer going to come through the line of Seth? Yes, and so then it will go on to Noah, to Shem, and by chapter 12, we'll get to Abram. 
Now, one of the things that happened in the Garden of Eden was he told them that they could not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He did not want them to know about evil. Correct? Okay, so it says, Of the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of that one you will surely die. So I began to look for some examples of good against evil where people meant things for evil, but God turned it to good, and I immediately thought of Joseph. And so if you look in Genesis 50, 20, he told his brothers, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. So can God take things evil against us and turn it to good? Sure. And he said to bring it about that many people would be kept alive as they are today. So he kept people physically alive, right? Yes, but Satan, did he try to destroy Jesus Christ in the crucifixion? Right, but that was to keep many of us alive. So we see a type of Jesus Christ over here with Joseph. So, we want to go on to when Satan tried to destroy the human race. Now, is there evidence in the Bible of spiritual warfare behind the scenes that caused God to send the flood? Yes. What problem did God need to resolve? Yes. Yes. In the days of Noah in the pre-flood world, they have estimated the population was about 2 billion people. Yeah, I think of old times like that, and I think, oh, there's these few little communities around. <laughs> 2 billion is what they estimate. Now, Satan knows that the seed of a woman is going to be responsible for crushing his head. Okay, he's got two billion people out there. How many of those men might be the one? He doesn't know, does he? So Satan's got to come up with something in order to find out, I've got to make sure that one of these is not the seed of the woman that is going to kill me or crush my head. So he knows he's going to be crushed by the seed of the woman. He's told that in the garden. So, the only viable solution, I've got to infect the entire human race to such a degree that none of them could be appropriate as the means by which God could keep his promise of judgment. Does it have to be a man? The seed of the woman is a man. Okay, so it has to be someone that is in flesh a man. We know that. So, we want to look now at the first attack on the human race, Satan is behind this, and we're going to what we like to call genetic wickedness. And I just want to tell you, when I did genetic wickedness, maybe four years ago, they discovered it on YouTube and took it off. So if this gets taken off in the future, but I'm not going to talk about modern day. I talked about modern day at that time and had all kinds of examples of what's going on, and they took it off, said I violated something. Okay. <laughs> yeah, shame on me. Okay, so we want to talk about this first attack that required the seed of the woman would be human, and our Redeemer also has to be a man, correct? We know that from the book of Ruth. Our Redeemer, our kindred Redeemer, has to be a man. So, it says, what was it like before Noah's flood? 
It was violent. It was wicked. Sounds like today. The midst of this godless civilization, a startling event occurred. And we're going to look at Genesis chapter 6. And I want us to note that there's two or three verses and it's one sentence. One thought. It came to pass, men are beginning to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters are being born to them. The sons of God saw daughters of men, they're beautiful, and they took wives for themselves of whomever they chose. The time of this sin is given as before the judgment of the flood. This is what's happening. Now, we're going to dig in a little bit here on what sons of God means in the Old Testament. Sons of God is the term benai Elohim, and it means fallen angels in the Old Testament. This is exclusively used in the Old Testament, and it's always fallen angels. I'm going to go to the book of Job to show this. In Job chapter 1, 2, and in chapter 38. The sons of God, Benai Elohim, are fallen angels. It says in Job chapter 1, There was a day, and what term do you see? Who's coming to present themselves before the Lord God? the sons of God. But who's with them? Satan is among them. And we're going to see all the times in the Old Testament it talks about sons of God. Satan is either there or he is represented by them. So we have these fallen angels. Do we know that he took a third of the angels with him? So in the Hebrew Old Testament that was translated into Greek, that's the Septuagint, this is 300 years before Jesus Christ, in the Septuagint, sons of God was always called the angels of God. Daughters of men, Benoth, Adam, they were daughters of Adam. So you've got daughters of Adam being born, and you have these angels of God that see them and come down and take them as wives. Okay. Now, this is highly venerated by Jewish scholars from the 2nd century B.C., to the second century AD, they all agree the sons of God in the Old Testament were called angels of God. Everybody with me? Some of you have a puzzled look. <laughs> okay, this is the view from all of the early church fathers. Philo of Alexandria, Justin Martyr, Irenaeus, Ath Athenagoras, Tertullian, Lact Lactanitius, Amrose, and Julian. Now, when you go to the New Testament, we could get confused because we have a passage like John 1.12. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. So when you get to the sons of God in the New Testament, it's always a believer. But in the Old Testament, and you can go to the Septuagint and to the commentaries, it's always the angels. So you just... I've dug into that, and that's the agreement of all the commentators. So the conclusion, the sons of God, in Genesis 6-2, he's talking about angels. And when you see what they're doing, you know it's not a believer that's coming down and uh, choosing all these uh, women, these daughters of Adam, to be their wives. Okay. If you're still stuck over there, you're just going to have to get on the train with me. <laughs> Keep going. 
and then you can dig into it. The Bible is a drama about Satan trying to thwart the plan of God. True? As God revealed his plan more, Satan can now focus his attack because he doesn't know things in the future. He knows only what is revealed as God reveals it. So it seems Satan is seeking to employ some of his fallen angels to corrupt who Satan trying to get after the seed of the woman, because some seed of the woman, some man, is the one that's going to crush his head. So, in Genesis 6-4, there's giants in those days in the earth. Notice the next phrase. And also after that. So after the flood, this is going to happen again. When the sons of God came into the daughters of men, they bare children to them, and these became mighty men which were of old men of renown. This is the word giants or Nephilim in the Hebrew. So the intrusion of these angels that are called sons of God, fallen angels, into the human family, now we have this unnatural offspring. So if this continues, are we ever going to have a real flesh and blood man? No, because these are hybrids. The Nephilim were only part human. They created a hybrid, a literal physical being. So the fallen angels of God, the ones that fell with Satan, they are the male parent. They're like the dad, we'll say. And then they get a daughter of Adam. They said, wow, and they want, to be, they want to come together, but their offspring are called the Nephilim. They are a hybrid male. Notice that all of the offspring were males. These hybrid males that we have to get rid of. Okay, now, Nephilim is derived from the Hebrew word nephal, which means to fall or fallen ones. And they are called the high gibberim, or the mighty ones, in the Old Testament. So in the Septuagint, it renders this term gigantes, which means they were earth-born. They're earth-born. Giants in the Old Testament. If I go to the book of Enoch, now was Enoch a prophet? We learn that from the book of Jude, and he prophesied the second coming of Jesus Christ. He was a preacher. He walked with God, and God took him right? So I think we can kind of look at some of his writings and at least consider them. The book of Enoch and other non-biblical writings, they talk about this race of giants and superheroes who were doing great acts of evil, acts of great evil. This would not come from a believer, a son of God. This comes from a fallen angel. All right. Now, if the Nephilim were half human and half fallen angel, it's going to give great understanding to all these ancient religious views about Babel and about demigods that you see in Greek mythology and all kinds of cultures. They always had these people that were part person and part animal or part something else. And they were considered the superior people in the culture. So, immediately after the mention of the Nephilim in Genesis 4, 6-4, what does God's word say? And God saw the wickedness of man was great. He's just talked about them and about these fallen angels coming with the women. And this is what we're getting. 
and God saw the wickedness of the man was great. Every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. This is the reason for the flood. This is one of the reasons he had to get rid of all of this. So, it goes on to say, It repented the Lord that he made man on the earth, and it grieved him at his heart. I'm sure he is grieving now with what's going on now, how we are destroying our children, and what's going on in the labs all over the world. Because they are creating all kinds of things that are not quite human. So, in verse 7 through 9, the Lord said, I'm going to destroy man whom I've created from the face of the earth, man and beast, creeping thing and birds of the air, for I'm sorry that I have made them. But Noah found grace, it says, in the eyes of the Lord. Don't ever think that Noah was sinless. That's not what this means. It says, Noah was a just man and perfect in his generation, he had an unblemished DNA. He had an unblemished DNA. So God is going to have to preserve them to be able to start the human race again. And said Noah walked with God. He also preached to him for 120 years as they ridiculed him and scoffed at him. So this is Satan's evil plan to pollute the human bloodline in order to prevent the coming of the Messiah. Do I have a man that could be the seed? Is he still a real man, flesh and blood man, and he hasn't been contaminated? That's what he's trying to do, contaminate the race so that the Messiah cannot be born the seed of the woman. God had promised the Messiah would one day crush the head of the serpent, Satan. The fallen angels in Genesis 6 are attempting possibly to prevent the crushing of the serpent. Is the serpent their leader? Yes. And make it impossible for there to ever be a sinless seed of the woman to be born. So that's what a lot of this is all about. It seems this was part of Satan's strategy to corrupt the line of Adam to, fulfill, to prevent the fulfillment of messianic redemption. <clears throat> So the word perfect in his generations in Hebrew is tamim, maybe, without blemish, sound, it's healthful, without spot. So he has an unblemished genealogy. So the fallen angels intermingled with daughters of man, and they contaminated the DNA of man. That's what they're doing in the labs all over the world. And it's going on. If you want to know more about it, if that intrigues you, look up Billy Crone, C-R-O-N-E, and he will tell you a lot about it. He has all kinds of videos and testimony, and he can really uh, give you a lot of information if you find that subject interesting. I find it fascinating. So here is a picture of possibly a fallen angel coming together with a daughter of Adam, the beautiful women. And what happens? They have a hybrid Nephilim. So we have a gene pool problem, correct? And we're having that more and more. You need to learn about what is CRISPR that they're doing uh, to our DNA. 
CRISPR is very interesting. Uh, you can learn about that from Billy Crone and also some from people who serve in uh, some clinics all over the U United States and the world. In the human family tree, they created the Nephilim who were the source of unusual violence. These, the fathers are who? The fallen angels that went with Satan and rebelled against God. So we can see how all this violence is happening. Now, their great size and power likely came from the mixture of demonic fallen angels. You've got a DNA with human genetics. Remember, the word Nephal is the Hebrew for Nephilim, and it was giants, they're fallers, they're rebels, they're apostates. And they usually were of great size. And God says to Noah in verse 12, the end of all flesh. Now you can think about that, and it, the way it hits me, the end of a person who is truly a person, a flesh and blood person. The end of all flesh has come before me because the earth is filled with violence through them, and behold, I'm going to destroy them with the earth. So the flood from God's view, he looked on the earth and it was corrupt. All flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. So we have a corrupted DNA, a lot of corrupted people. And he said the end of all flesh, I believe that's the wickedness of the hybridization of man with fallen angels. If you've heard Elon Musk, I'm sure most of you know who he is. He has said, if you are not willing to be hooked up to a computer so that your brain is controlled by this massive thing, computer, then you will be irrelevant in the future. So all this digital age that's coming, you know, and what are they wanting to do now? And young people especially are going after this, all this digital stuff because it's so easy, this is so convenient, and they say, we want to upload your consciousness into their cloud. You can see the shadows of all of this coming, all of it. Okay. Hopefully they won't find this, that I mentioned this in the middle, and <laughs> take it off. Okay, and we find in Genesis 5:24, Enoch walked with God, then he was no more because God took him away. We've talked about this. I believe he's a type of the church. Before judgment falls, he took Enoch out. I believe before the tribulation period falls, he's going to take the church out. Hallelujah. Yes, <laughs> wave that paper. <laughs> and then Noah and the family were preserved through the judgment by being in the ark. I believe it's a type of the Jewish remnant. The remnant that came out then started a new creation, new earth, and the remnant that will come out of the tribulation period, I believe they will have been in Petra, and they will go into the kingdom and will start the kingdom age with them. So the earth suffered a catastrophic and climatic change, and this entered the antediluvian age. This is the age before the flood, and now you'll start an age or a dispensation that follows after the flood. So God used an ark, which is a type of Jesus Christ, and he used eight people. It's all he needed. It's all he needed to thwart Satan's strategy to preserve the seed. 
Now, do we, we're told that by the confirmation of two or three witnesses, we can find a thing to be true, correct? So let's go to Second uh, Peter, I think it is, and we have a witness. No, we're going to Jude 1 first. The angels which kept not their first estate. Wow, I wonder what that means. So we're going to go to Jude and find out about these fallen angels. They left their own habitation, and he's reserved in everlasting chains under darkness unto the judgment of the great day. These are the angels that fell, and they left their first estate, and they're being held in chains uh, to the judgment of the great day. Notice it says they kept not their first estate, or angel spirits. Yes, they abandoned their angelic form. So their, the spirit had some kind of a covering, all right? But they set that aside, and they want to take on a human form, all right, to come to earth. It says they left their own habitation. The word habitation in Greek is oikaterion, and it refers to the body as a dwelling place for your spirit. So when you and I die, we leave this old earthly body, and until we get our glorified body, I believe there's some kind of a covering, some kind of a dwelling place for our spirit and soul. Right? That's what I think. I think we'll see that. Now, he goes on to say the habitation, the oikiterion, is only used two times in the whole Bible, this Greek word. One is in Jude 1.6, it's the dwelling place, the angels disrobed from that habitation because they wanted to come down in human form and they took on human form, all right? The only other place this is used is in 2 Corinthians 5, 1 and 2. And it alludes to a heavenly body to which the believer belong, longs to be clothed with. Remember, we long to drop this earthly tent. I think that's what it says. We want to lose our earthly tent, and we want to be clothed with our house which is in heaven. So we want the covering, the habitation for our spirit and soul in heaven. And they wanted to give theirs up and come down here in human form. So the same word is used to describe only two places it's used in the Bible. What the angels want to give up. They want to give up their covering, their habitation for their spirit to come down here and cohabit with some women. And we want to give our thing down here, our earthly tent up, because we long for our covering in heaven to cover our soul and spirit. Only two places it's used in the Bible. If I go to uh, Jude 1.7, he says, Even as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities about them in like manner, giving themselves over to fornication, going after strange flesh. We've got strange flesh walking around. He says, They're set forth for an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. There were two angels in Sodom and Gomorrah, and they had human form, Right? In Sodom and Gomorrah, the, heck, the homosexuals regarded the angels as a prize. And they lusted after the two angels that were in Lot's house. Notice chapter 19, verse 4. Before they had gone to bed, all the men from every part of the city, young and old, 
How many other men? All of them surrounded Lot's house because they wanted those two angels. And they called unto Lot and said to him, Where are those men that came into thee this night? Bring them out to us because we want to know them. That means they want to have sex with them. The whole town, all the men in town. Angels had the ability to take on human form. We know that. Evidently, some angels looked upon and lusted after the daughters of men. That's what we read in Genesis. They abandoned their residence in heaven. We know that from Peter and Jude. And they exchanged my celestial body. I want one of those terrestrial bodies so I can go down to earth in human form. They don't know what it's like to live in one of these bodies. And they, t- they took whomever they chose and they married the daughters of men to engage in sexual intercourse, thereby producing an offspring and a hybrid called a Nephilim, and they made a new half-breed race. Yeah? It says we know a little bit about angels. They always appear in human form. We go to Sodom and Gomorrah at the resurrection, the angels that were there uh, and uh, spoke. And at the ascension, we know that they speak. They take, have taken men by the hand and they eat meals. They're capable of direct physical combat. Think about the death angel uh, at Passover in Egypt and the one angel that slaughtered 185,000 Syrians. Now, it tells us in Second Peter 2, God did not spare these angels when they sinned, but they had been cast into Tartarus. Tartarus, only time it's mentioned in the Bible, and committed them to a pit of darkness, and they're being reserved for judgment. Now, I have given you this map before. If you don't have it at home or you want a copy, you can Google Clarence Larkin's charts. Get his chart of the underworld, and you can see this. If you will look at this Larkin, L-A-R-K-I-N, And he has all kinds of charts, and this is of the underworld. See my green bar going across? Okay, that means the ground we're standing on. That's the earth. All the little colors below it are underground. All right, this is the underworld. Now, if you look at the blue circle over on the far left, this is Tartarus. This is the reserved for the fallen angels are that are being reserved for judgment. That's where they are right now. All right, if you look at the yellow circle, kind of in the middle, all right, this is where Satan will be put at the end, uh, during the thousand-year period. He's there all by himself under lock and key. All right, now, if you go, do you see the black oval in the center, the long oval? Okay, this is the gulf that was between paradise and hell. All right, this is called the, the abode of the dead. And so the green one on the left is paradise. This is where Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and King David, all the Old Testament saints went to paradise. And it was also called Abraham's bosom. Then the big black oval, that is the gulf that was between. And then the orange over there is what we would call hell or Sheol. And this is the abode of the dead. And that's where all of the unbelievers 
have been since, I'm assuming, Cain and every unbeliever since. They're still there. But we know it's a place of torment because of the rich man. He saw Lazarus over here, right? And he said, oh, let him come dip his uh, finger in water and cool my tongue because I'm tormented in this flame. So we know that the orange circle hell, where all these unbelievers are, is a place of torment and it has some fire. But we also know they could see over here because he could see Abraham. Okay, now when Jesus was resurrected, he emptied paradise, the green circle, and he took them to where he is now. So that part is all vacant. All right? And then you see the orange circle down in the bottom right corner. That's the lake of fire. The lake of fire was created for who? Satan and his angels. Is anybody in the lake of fire right now? No. The first two people that will be in there are the beast and the false prophet. At the end of the seven-year tribulation period, Jesus comes back, and they think they're going to get him. And he gets them. And right in front of all of the followers, the beast and false prophet are going to be thrown into the lake of fire live. The next ones that will be in there are the goats from the sheep and goat judgment. They're judged here at the end of the seven years, thrown into the lake of fire. Satan will be there later after the thousand years, as will all of the people that are in the orange part in hell. They're not in the lake of fire yet. Okay, there are no humans ever in the blue or the yellow circle. That's angels that are waiting for judgment. Okay, so Tartarus in Greek, it was the dark abode of woe. It was a pit of darkness in an unseen world. This is the only time that word is even used in the New Testament, and it's for those mischievous angels. And it says in Peter, And he spared not the old world, but he saved Noah, the eighth person, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood upon the world of the ungodly. So uh, Peter is going to link those angels that sinned there in Tartarus with the days of Noah and the destruction of the flood. So we know that those are the ones that are now in Tartarus. The idea that renegade angels came down to earth and cohabited with women to produce a hybrid offspring is very strange. I didn't really know about this until maybe 20 years ago. I never heard it preached growing up. However, that idea is prevalent in the legends of virtually every ancient culture. You can look at all these different cultures. And every one of them has stories about star people or gods who produced offspring on earth. All kinds of movies, all kinds of books. It's a very prevalent idea. Now he says, also the afterward the Nephilim are going to appear on the earth. So it seems like some fallen angels repeat this sin sometime after the flood. You're going to have all these Nephilim come back. Do you remember God revealed the promised Messiah is going to come through the line of Abram, Abraham? But due to a famine, Abraham, where are you and your family going for 400 years? Y'all are going down to Egypt. Then I'll bring you out of Egypt, and I'll take you to the promised land. Who's listening? Satan. Satan. He doesn't know things ahead, but he knows what's going on. So Satan has 400 years now 
because all of his Nephilim were destroyed in the flood. But now we're in chapter 12 of Genesis, and he's going to start again. And we know that these Nephilim are going to come back, and here's some picture of some of the, the uh, Nephilim that have been recorded. And you can see the early Canaanite giant scale from Amos 2. They have one recorded as much as 36 feet tall. And you can see the little six-foot man down, on the, down in the corner down there. Yeah, but Goliath and them were probably around 12. So you have, but you have all of these tribes, and I've listed them for you. All of these were Nephilim tribes that were found in the promised land when they went to go, uh, go into their land. And it says, remember, they brought up an evil report, right? The ten spies. Because what did they see in the land? I thought they were all destroyed in the flood. Oh, they're back. See, they had 400 years to get all that going again. And now our land, our promised land, is filled with all these giants once again. Peterson Simboitwe says, Any report that creates hopelessness, fear, and causes people to doubt the authenticity of the already spoken word of God, it's evil. It is an evil report. And that's what these ten spies brought. When the Israelites spied out the land of Canaan, they reported to Moses, we saw the Nephilim. They're back. That land's full of giants. He tells us, the disciples were asking him, what are the signs of your coming? What are we looking for? And the first thing he said, take heed that no man deceives you. That was his answer. And then he goes on to explain. Matthew 24, as the days of Noah were, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days that were before the flood, they're just eating and drinking, marrying, giving in marriage, until the day Noah entered the ark. And they do not until the flood came, took them all away. So shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. But what was going on in the days of Noah? This wickedness, trying to destroy mankind satan's always tried to destroy mankind so i've looked at matthew 13 20 and he says unless the lord had shortened the days no life or no flesh would have been saved that's what you and i are looking at and after we leave this is going to get worse and worse and worse and i think this scripture is saying like the days of noah by the time Jesus Christ comes back at his second coming, after, at the tribulation period, will there be any people left that are all human? Except the remnant. But mankind, they're getting so caught up in this digital stuff and their chips and getting, you know, I'm going to get hooked up to a computer and have a <coughs> super mental capacity. <coughs> Sorry. And in Luke 21, 28, are we beginning to see the convergence of all these things? Man, we're beginning to see it all. He says, look up when you see the convergence of it coming because your redemption draws nigh. And look, here's the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Don't let anyone tell you we are in the tribulation period now. You and I are seeing the shadows of it because Jesus Christ is the one who's going to break the seals and he's going to start it in Revelation 6, chapter 1, and it's called the wrath of the Lamb. 
Now you and I are seeing the beginnings of famine. We're beginning to see the beginnings of earthquakes everywhere and pestilence and all this other stuff, but we are not in the tribulation period because I have a promise. I'm to be looking for that blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, and he says in 1 Thessalonians 4, we that are alive and remain, I'm going to be caught up together with the Lord to meet him in the air and thus we shall always be with the Lord. And ladies, I'm comforting you with those words. The days of Noah are coming, but God's going to take his bride out. <clears throat> yes. Sorry. So on that note, we're going to pray. Lord, we thank you. And hallelujah is what we say and praise the Lord.